Hello and welcome to COVID Stories, a podcast series regarding leadership following the COVID-19 outbreak. I'm your host, Dallas Emerson, Director of Business Development at the IT Guys. Before we get started, these interviews were conducted during the COVID lockdown and were held over Microsoft Teams. Any sound quality issues are the result of social distancing that we're all too familiar with. If you're listening on our site, we're thrilled to have you, but you might find it easier to listen to COVID stories through iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. Joining me today is Mike Emerson, CEO of The IT Guys. This will be a different kind of episode and that we'll be talking about what we've learned and seen throughout the COVID pandemic. Today's discussion is going to be focused on management and people problems. We'll be talking about some of the technology issues we've seen in the next episode. How you doing, Mike? Doing good, Dallas. How are you? I'm doing okay. So when we get started here, well, where would you like to get started with this conversation? I, I think the best place to get started is probably at the beginning. Uh, is why did we come up with the idea of COVID stories? What was the point? And what were we hoping to accomplish? How about that? Yes. So, you know, this got started because of separate conversations that you had had with some executive directors, some CEOs, and some conversations I had had with similar people. And what we found was that people kind of kept asking a similar question, which was, well, what are other people doing? Right. When, when the COVID thing first started, and people were in total panic. Uh, one of the things I did was make a point to contact uh, our executive directors and CEOs and to get a feel for them how things were going, just kind of a, a pulse check. And a, a, a lot of common questions began to pop up through the course of those conversations. And then some interesting insights, what they were doing. So it seemed to be a good idea to kind of distill all that information in a way that it's available to everyone to share those common experiences. <laughs> And the thing I found, I found, or I find funny now, uh, looking back on it, is we thought, okay, we're going to do some of these uh, recordings. We're going to ask a couple of people to chat, uh, and we'll cut it down to five, maybe ten minutes if we really want to go long. And what we found, especially after that first call, uh, the first one was with Tiffany McGee, actually, and uh, we found, oh, my gosh, we can't cut anything out of this. This is all great. Yeah, it was a surprise. I thought you were being generous. I'm thinking, oh, maybe it'll be three minutes, you know, maybe five. I mean, how much more would there be to say? Uh, but yes, once they started unraveling and unfolding, we thought, oh my gosh, this is amazing, amazing stuff. And everyone needs to hear all of this because every, I think everyone will listen to these stories and something will resonate with one person that's different than will resonate with somebody else. Uh, there's different parts to all of them as far as the, the shared experiences that, that are executive directors and other leaders have experienced. And who am I to say that's not important? You know, so I guess we just made the decision. Let's just put it all out there. Right. Well, and what we saw is that no one has the same experience. While everybody has a similar experience, it seems, you know, we all were really scared at first and then <laughs> thrown into a world of chaos after that. From there, everybody's focus is different. That's what I've really enjoyed about all these conversations is hearing even in, you know, we've interviewed a number of associations, and you would think, how different could Austin-based associations be? Very different is the answer. So, Mike, how has your life changed during the COVID pandemic? As, uh, as the CEO of the IT guys, how has that changed? Well, it's kind of a funny question, because 
I feel sort of guilty that my life hasn't changed that much uh, compared to our peers that we've been talking with, mainly because uh, the IT guys has been a virtual company forever. Uh, we have not had an office or any sort of infrastructure uh, since 2008-ish. And so working from home, working remotely, interconnecting with each other remotely has just been second nature to us. And, and I don't give it a second thought anymore. But now when I hear people who have been wrenched out of their offices and, and, and put into a, a totally alien situation, uh, I have great empathy for them because they didn't do it on a planned schedule. It was just, bam, here you are. And I will say that, that the people I've talked to, the, the, the leadership and the staff have done a remarkable job of adapting really quickly. I mean, the first week was kind of like, ah, what are we doing? It was, it was somewhat of a panic mode, but it settled down real quickly. And, and fortunately, there weren't that many technical issues that our clients dealt with, mainly because uh, we had already moved them to the cloud, much like we had made that move earlier. So one of the, you know, the prime parts of our 501 cloud management platform is that everything's cloud-based. So you can be anywhere, any, any time and do anything you want. So we didn't build that model with a global pandemic in mind, um, but it turned out to really work well for that. So that was great. So fortunately, our members had more management and people issues to deal with and not technical technological issues, which is great. Let's get that. They got that out of the way, you know, months or years ago. Yeah. I, that was one of the questions I was asking uh, a number of our clients early on. Is, is this more of a people problem or tech problem? And almost universally they say, well, the tech isn't the problem, uh, which is not to say their people are the problem, uh, but that it was, it was more of a relational or communication based issue, which I guess, what kind of management problems have we been hearing about? So I know you had some conversations well before we started COVID stories. What were the kinds of things you were hearing that made you want to start talking about these? Well, I think the main thing was a matter of style. It's amazing how when we work in an office, we get so used to just ad hoc, impromptu conversations that, that lead to other things, which is a good thing. You walk by somebody's office and say, oh, by the way, you know, whatever. And the conversation ensues from there. Well, obviously, when you're not office in the same building, that's not possible anymore. So what happens is your communications have to become much more intentional. You've got to be more aware of what you're going to do, where you're going, when you're going to do it, who you're going to do it with, and what's the objective. So you, the downside is until you get really used to it, used to it being not working in an office together, you lose some of the spontaneity factor that you've had, which you don't even realize you have until it's gone. And I see that a lot. And then the other side of it is, as I've discovered, you know, for people who don't know us, uh, we work almost entirely with associations and nonprofits. And one of the reasons we made that decision is we really like the people we work with, because oddly enough, they're all people people. Who knows? Uh, Go figure. People yeah. who work yeah. for people and people who try to serve people are people people. Right. And and so they're great to work with for that reason. The downside to being a mass of people people is when they're not connected together, it kind of blows their mind a little bit. It's like I'm used to this closeness, this, this interrelational feel good that I've had all this time, and it's gone. Um, technicians – and I will say this because I am one, tend not to be as much people people. We are lone wolves as a rule. And 
while we, we, well, some enjoy people more than others and the others don't enjoy people at all. Uh, we don't miss that as much. You know, it's like, Hey, this has been all, all, all the time. This is great. And so what I find is people missing that closeness. And so they've come with some innovative ways to, to get around that. Like, you know, zoom happy hours and zoom water coolers or teams water coolers. Uh, and it's, it's, it's interesting to watch how when people are pushed into a corner, how they can react with, with ingenuity to solve the problems that they've been given. And the technology is secondary to the application of that technology. And, and it's been really, I've been surprised and, and I feel really good about that, that we put in place ways that people are doing things that we never thought of when we did it. You know, when we out, when we rolled out 5.1 Cloud, we never knew it would be used for this. I mean, who would ever know that? Uh, but when you watch it, you think, oh, this is cool. We've taken – people are extrapolating from what we gave them and doing things we never thought about, which yeah. is really – I used to tell people uh, that 501 Cloud, you know, because of all the backups and things like that, guarantees your operations up to and including a limited nuclear war, uh, you know, full-scale nuclear war. It's all gone. What I didn't know is that it was uh, going to be field tested as being pandemic proof. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and you know, it's an interesting point, Dallas, that disaster recovery was kind of a baked into the 501 cloud cake, so to speak. It's kind of a cliche nowadays, but it's, it is so that you can recover from disasters quite easily because there is no infrastructure on the ground that can't be replaced easily. It's you know, computers, mainly, you know, tablets or laptops and that sort of thing. But your data and everything is all off-site, all in the cloud. So you can get back up and running really quickly. Um, but what we found out was there are other types of disasters than hurricanes and tornadoes and floods and fires. You know, COVID-19 is what I've come to think of as a rolling disaster. It started and it keeps going and going and going. And it's not a singular event like the, what we're used to thinking about in terms of disaster recovery. So the great thing about the 5.1 Cloud Platform is it's enabled our clients to deal with a rolling disaster like this and continue to function. And it's funny, as, well, maybe not funny, it's interesting how as time has progressed and the panic factor has, has gone down and people have settled into this new routine, it's like, well, this is how we, we do it all the time now. It, it, the novelty's gone, and it's just this is how it works which is great to see. You know, thinking back to something you had kind of mentioned or hinted at earlier by talking about people, people, one of the things in the association world I've noticed, and maybe you can, you can speak a little bit to this too, is it seems like association, particularly the executives, the leadership of associations, even more so than mission-driven nonprofits, are extremely emotionally intelligent. Would you agree with that? For sure. The, you know, it, it's like a... I don't want to compare them to horses and dogs. That sounds terrible. But, you know, the animals that just have the ability to to just sense emotions in, you know, from another room. Oh, yeah, they have great empathy. Just when, when you walk in to an association, if you're not feeling 100 percent and you have even the, you know, the most passing familiarity with uh, the association executive, they'll know. They'll know that something is going on. And nine times out of ten, they'll gently ask, hey, is everything all right? And I found that a lot of association leaders used that as a way of being able to manage their people very effectively. Well, now that we're all at a distance, 
I think that's been one of the biggest problems for association leaders from a staff perspective is they no longer have that intimate ability to just look at somebody and go, oh, something's wrong with Bob. It takes a lot more effort now. You're going to have to set up a time to talk. You're going to have to reach out. You're going to have to uh, make sure that it works for their schedule and then see if you can still tell whether or not everything is okay by looking at a screen. Oh, for sure, which is much more difficult. Much more. Uh, and maybe it's because people find it easier to hide what they're feeling behind a screen, or there's just something about it that takes away. Well, it's why the, the screen connection never feels the same as just sitting in person. Uh, I it's, agree. It's never as satisfying as hanging out in person. Oh, it's not. It's better than telephone. Yes. Because uh, I'm famously not a fan of talking on the phone a lot, uh, as people can attest to when I don't answer phone calls. You're a very uh, bad baby boomer for that, by the way. <laughs> but I do like video calls because I get to see the person. And, and a lot of how I communicate, and I think even though I'm not a massive people person like our executive directors and other leaders are, um, I respond by the, verb, by the visual cues I'm getting from someone as much as the verbal ones. Um, but if you are not used to doing that, it's easy, like you say, it's easy to hide behind the screen and just say everything's fine. So what, you know, I, I think what I heard, maybe the best example of how somebody is dealing with that particular problem of not being able to just easily assess how somebody is doing was with Trisha Hall, uh, who I know is one of both you and my favorite people, uh, in that she actively gets in touch with each and every one of her staff every morning to see how they're doing. Uh, and I think that's incredible. It is. It's a great discipline. I wish I had that. Um, sometimes I realize, hey, I haven't talked talk to this guy in a, in a week. And I, I guess everything's okay. He's getting his work done, you know. So, um, And that's another thing that's interesting is, is management styles. Um, I believe it was Roger Ariaga from the Affordable Housing Association uh, talked about that, that you need to change your style less to being a, a, a clock watcher, who's punching in, who's punching out, and being more flexible of who's getting their, you know, what's got to get done, what's the time frame that's got to get done, and then trusting your staff that they're going to get it done. Uh, and some people can do that easily and some people can't. I mean, there, there are people who are micromanagers. They're, that just blows their mind that they can't, they have to do something like that. Um, people like me, I know the people I work with, I trust them implicitly, and I know here's the mission, here's the time, go do it, and and that works great. And and so that kind of mentality, I think, is critical to being successful working in a remote environment like we are in. Those people that need to be on top of everybody's calendar minute by minute have a real difficult time with this. And I think Paula Bukitis over at Girl Scouts said something similar to Roger. I find that fascinating that they have very different worlds, you know, very different size of organizations, very different missions. But that she said that they are shifting toward, and I think her term was an output focused measurement. That, you know, exactly. we understand everybody's working weird hours. Everybody's working uh, in a weird environment. You know, some of you are parents of young children. But if you're your job done, I don't care what time you started work. I don't care what time you finished work. And that's a great attitude. Back in the back in the dinosaur days when I was young and uh, managed uh, programmers, as we saw back in the day before they were developers, 
Um, my philosophy was work when you want to work as long or as short as you want to. I don't care. You know what you got to get done and it's got to get done. And you find you get actually more work from people that way. Anyway, they're going to work the hours they want to work uh, and they're more productive. And so I think more and more we're going to see people because of the COVID's going to be interesting. It's going to be an interesting linchpin or I hate the word pivot, the pivot point in management styles for a lot of people. And that it's going to change how we look at what we expect people to do and how we expect them to work. Because people are doing things today that we never thought we would do two months ago. Uh, Even to the point of some people like, well, maybe I should try this virtual office thing. You know, do I really need an office? Yeah, maybe so, maybe not. But they didn't want to do it. They didn't want to take the time to to try it because it would seem so traumatic. Well, they had blunt force trauma applied to them, you know, in, in February, March. And had to do it. And then now they're finding out, hey, I can do that. Do I need an office? You know, it, it's interesting to see how when you're forced into something, you can adapt quickly. A lot of people can't. Some people can't. And that's going to be an interesting situation as we watch that unfold. You know, who adopts it, who doesn't. You know, and that hits on something. For a while now, if you're, if you've been involved, particularly in the association world, there has been a feeling of things are going to have to change. That, how associations provide value, what kind of value they are providing is going to have to change. And I think associations and non, well, nonprofits in general, you know, 501c3s, 501c6s, mission driven, membership driven tend to be little c conservative, right? They, they tend to say, I'm alive today. So if I do this tomorrow, I should still be alive tomorrow, uh, which oh, is. Totally understandable, particularly given the fact that they're not allowed to have very much money on hand. Otherwise, they might be considered a for-profit. Um, I think what COVID has done, though, is it has taken, I think in a conversation you and I had earlier offline, you had called it the, the meteor that's going to wipe the dinosaurs out. Yeah, and, I was thinking about that again, just actually earlier today. Why don't you bring that up? Um, well, first of all, People are change averse as a rule. We all are, you know, because we're comfortable in our little in our square right now. I'm, uh, it may not be great, but it doesn't suck either, you know. So if I stay right here, I know what I've got. If I step to the next square, who knows what's going to happen? And so that's why we tend not to change unless we're either we're incented to do it, somebody gives us a deal we can't refuse, or we're we're forced to do it by a global pandemic. So yeah, the whole meteor thing. I was thinking about it today, and that COVID from a business point of view, is an existential event uh, in that, you know, the, the meteor is coming, it hit, the dinosaurs get wiped out. The furry little mammals that can adapt, live, and ultimately thrive and take over the world. And what I mean by that is if you have businesses that are so calcified in the way they do their work that they can't see any other way to do it, when the world changes Quickly as it has here and will never go back to how it was before. It may, it may get close or, or not. We'll have to see. That's how that shakes out. But if they can't adapt to whatever the future is, they will die. It's an unfortunate thing, but that's how it's going to happen. The, the other companies that are more nimble, more open to change, more willing to ad- adopt new, uh, procedures, new ways of doing things are going to adapt to this new environment. They're going to thrive. And so you're going to have this change. And so, you know, used to be you and I, Dallas, we say this all the time. 
that used to be work was where you went to because that's where the filing cabinets were and the telephones were and the typewriters were. As you move to a cloud-based environment, work is where you are. And the more that companies embrace that idea, the more successful they're going to be for, to get through COVID and whatever the next COVID is. It's either going to be COVID, you know, son of COVID next year when, if we get another round, which I hope you don't, or it's going to be the next whatever that comes up that causes a disruption. Those that are getting, using COVID as a laboratory to figure out how to make this work as a lesson learned to know we got to make this work are going to be much better prepared for son of COVID, whatever form that takes, when it happens. And it will happen. And, and that kind of leads me, I guess, to something I've been thinking about. Um, and I wanted to get your input in on this, thinking about membership organizations versus mission-driven organizations. If you Obviously, membership organizations have a mission. But, you know, the difference between Big Brothers, Big Sisters, and Girl Scouts, and TSAE, for example. Have we really seen differences in activity, differences in how the, how well they've adapted between those two kind of subsets that we live in? Well, that's a good question. And I'm not sure I know the answer to that yet. What have you seen? What I have seen so far and I think it's the nature of the beast, is I think associations, despite in most cases I think being slightly more overworked than uh, kind of the organizations I listed out as being membership-driven, because they generally have smaller staffs, I think associations were better equipped to maintain communications during this time, because they're used to having to take a, to take information and distill it quickly and get it out the door. And they were used to working in a mobile, you know, in a mobile environment. Associations, I tell people all the time, are some of those mobile people I know that, are, that they are going to trade shows, they're hosting events, they're hosting classes, they're going to meetings, what have you. And I think in some ways that was kind of training them for being in an environment where they would suddenly be detached from all physical infrastructure. Which is not to say that Girl Scouts, Big Brothers, Big Sisters, other mission-driven organizations are faltering. Uh, but that is to say, I think that in general, the association staff was more mentally prepared for this kind of thing. Because while it is a radical change from how they normally worked, I think how they normally worked was radically different from how everybody else normally worked. I agree. And you know, another thing, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk on thin ice here and... <laughs> You can decide later if you want to cut this out of the interview okay. uh, because it's going to sound funny and it doesn't or odd, but it's not meant to be. Um, in my experience, anyway, the, the nonprofit side of the world obviously is, is mission driven right. and the association world is just as as, as devoted to their, their mission as, as anyone. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but usually the, the nonprofit side of things tend to start off with a with an issue. Or a cause, if you want to call it that, okay, that somebody got passionate about and they started moving forward. And sometimes those, those things grow and become, you know, large organizations like, for instance, Big Brothers, Big Sisters, Girl Scouts, as you mentioned, or sometimes they don't. They, they settle into one or two person, uh, deal and that's what, and they're focused on their mission and that's it. Um, which just to be clear is completely fine. 
Absolutely, yes. I'm not I'm not making any any uh, any judgments on that. But what happens is you kind of get a division of of style. Okay, and the larger companies have to develop more of a quote business mentality as they get bigger. And as they do that, they have responsibilities to the the people they serve, to the boards they work with, to the donors that take that, that give them money, to run it in a in a such a way uh, as a responsible business would. Smaller organizations tend to come uh, they come in, again from a point of a mission and a cause, and they focus less on the business side of things and more on the cause side of things. And as a result of that is sometimes they're not prepared to handle events like COVID when it happens because they weren't thinking about it. They were, they were, you know, addressing the cause. And again, not saying that's wrong, but I think that's one where you see kind of a, a, a bifurcation in that, in the nonprofit market or market world is just, it's a different view uh, of what they're doing. I keep telling people in, in the nonprofit side, you are a business. You know, that doesn't make you a bad person. Sometimes people think, well, I don't want to be a business. I just want to do what I'm doing here. Well, you know, you are a business. And the more you run your nonprofit as a business, the more successful it's going to be. So you can, you can serve that mission. Uh, and it's a, it's a, it's a message that's difficult to get out sometimes. Uh, so anyway, that's what I've seen is it's just a difference in mentalities. And it's a lot of it's just the nature of, of the way the organization starts and where it goes. Yeah. I, I think, I think that's a really good point about how people approach their organizations. I mean, obviously you want to be mission first, but at a certain point, day-to-day operations also has to rise as a, uh, as a major concern. I mean, if you look at even, you know, your major Fortune 500 companies, you can't stay in startup mode forever. You right. can't stay the organization where you're drinking beer while trying to figure out a problem, eventually you need to have a method for dealing with the problem. Now, this might sound a little odd considering what we've just laid out there, but given the fact that these organizations tend to be people people and they tend to have a mission that they are devoted to, do you think in some ways that actually means that nonprofit and associations are actually better off than your average small or medium-sized business? Oh, I think so, 100%. And a lot of that is because those organizations attract people who thrive in an environment of doing, doing for others, not just drawing a paycheck. Okay? So when it hits the fan, like with COVID, you find out really quickly that the people in organizations like uh, a member of driven associations or mission driven associations will work so much harder to get the job done because it's not just for the money. It's because they love it. They love the people and they love the mission that they're trying to accomplish. And, and that uh, devotion will carry an organization so much further than just someone, you know, punching a clock to use an, an acronym. Uh, and I'm not dis- disparaging anybody who, who works in, not in our, in these markets. I mean, everyone is there. Everyone does their jobs, and that's great. What I'm saying is, I mean, we're not in those markets. Yeah, and we love our jobs too. Uh, but it raises the bar, uh, and so people will go over and above more than I see in other organizations and other in other uh, markets 
to get the job done because of who they are. So I think definitely the, the associated nonprofit market is, is hugely an advantage because of the quality of the staff that people have as a rule. One of the reasons I really enjoy this, this market and one reason we decided to make the decision only to work with the, this, this the association of the nonprofit market is because I just like the people there and they're great to work with and they're fun to work with. And you know me, I've always said, if you're, if you're not having fun doing your job, find another job. You know, and so we did this business before when we did everybody. We took care of all businesses, and I wasn't having fun. And decided we needed to have, do, make, have another job, and that's when we did the IT guys to, to take care of the market we serve now. So anyway, yes, long story, long answer. I think the people we talk to, associations, nonprofits, have a huge advantage over other markets in, in responding to things like this. Now, and I want to make something clear, too, because I, I know right now, as we're speaking, well, in the future when somebody's listening to this, there's an association executive who has smoke coming out of his or her ears because we're talking about how associations and nonprofits are actually better positioned, but associations aren't covered by some of the federal funding, which I think is a huge problem that we see in this market and also leaves me quite confused why the people who are in charge of disseminating information aren't being covered in the same way that their members are being covered. Uh, does leave me a little confused. Oh, I don't get that at all. Uh, that, that's, but you know, the ways of Washington are mysterious and, and to behold, and I don't always get it. In fact, I seldom get it. But <laughs> why that distinction was made, I truly don't understand. Uh, nonprofits and, and associations need to survive as much as anybody else does. And if you're handing out money to, uh, you know, a liquor store, or the Los Angeles Lakers, <laughs> or, or, or Harvard, or whoever, you know, the big universities that return the money. Uh, they they obviously want to survive and probably have better ways of doing it than the average nonprofit or association does. And so I don't understand how that worked, but I understand there's some they're kind of they're looking at circling back and, re- and addressing that imbalance, which is good. I'm all for hopefully, that. Hopefully, by the time that we've talked about this or that this becomes uh, uh, published. People will be listening to this and go, wow, outdated information. I'd yeah. love to uh, be outdated information. Non-issue, guys. Yeah. <laughs> so this might sound like a crazy question, but I've seen a little bit of evidence that leads me to ask this question. I kind of want to get your, your input on this. Obviously, 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 COVID-19 is horrible. That being said, do we see any positive changes coming out of this? That's not to say, oh, well, it was all worth it because we saw these things. I just mean, are there any silver linings that we see coming out of this? Well, yeah, obviously, as you said, your obvious cubed comment there, uh, the amount of human tragedy in this is terrible. So I'm not going to say, oh, yeah, but then this happened. This was good. You know, it made it all worthwhile. Nothing made all that worthwhile. Nothing. But in the midst of, of trauma or upheaval, you got to find the silver linings where you can. And the silver linings that I've seen so far is, A, people finding out they can do things they didn't know they could do. Okay, And that's, that's always interesting to see. We, we have, or most of us have, a reservoir of resolution that we don't know that we have. Until it hits the fan and then we got to do something and we think, you know, it's like the little 10 year old kid getting in the drill and rushing, lifting a car off his mom, you know, that had fallen on her and didn't know he could do it. 
Well, there's a lot of 10-year-old kids out there right, lifting cars uh, that didn't know they could do it. So there's that. Uh, and, and then, again, the ability to reassess how things work. I mean, Paula Buketis at, at uh, Girl Scouts is one of the best examples to me. Listening to her interview was saying that she's in more in contact with people in their remote offices than she was before because the technology is in place now to do it. You said if you want to talk to somebody in San Angelo, she had to drive San Angelo. And, and so obviously you don't do that very often. Well, now she can do it every week. So that's a huge plus. That would have never happened, well, maybe never happened, unless this situation had occurred. So there's a silver lining. And you can go on and on, and you can find little pieces like that here and there, and you start connecting and you realize, okay, this has been a terrible time, and the, the tragedy is, is, is monumental. But when we come out of it, and we will, there will be things that are better than they were before. We can't always see it, but it will be that way. And I take I take hope and, and comfort from that. I think from my perspective, one of the biggest things that I can point to as a positive outcome is organizations, particularly those smaller nonprofits and smaller associations that are looking at permanently going virtual, of, of permanently being a virtual office where they don't necessarily have a physical office that everybody needs to drive to. And I say that because, first off, um, where we are, we're in the we're in the Austin area, but we have we've got a lot of contacts up in DFW. Traffic is just a nightmare all the time. If you're in a major metropolitan area, it's a nightmare. Uh, so getting workers off the road just means they're going to be less stressed. It also means these organizations are going to be spending a lot less money day to day to keep the lights on. Uh, it gives them more ability to maybe pay their staff a little bit better, better benefits, or invest in their own future, you know, get the, get the tools that otherwise they could not afford. And that's one of the things that excites me a lot is we have proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that there's a lot of organizations out there that can work very effectively without needing a physical office. Absolutely. That, that excites me because I look and I see there was a lot of, and it's going to sound harsh to say there was a lot of waste in those organizations because it, that always makes it sound like, well, somebody wasn't paying attention. Well, it sounds judgmental, yeah. But th- there was unnecessary overhead. Maybe I could put it like that. There was <laughs> yeah, that's un- a nice euphemism for that. Go ahead. Yes. Use that. There was unnecessary overhead that we can get rid of, that we can say, well, and especially for nonprofit organizations who so often are uh, are victimized by the the – the unfair overhead ratio. Well, how much of the, how much of this dollar are you going to spend on your mission? And how much of this dollar are you going to spend on your building? Well, uh, now we can say, well, there is no building, so it's all going toward the mission. Yeah, yeah, and you know me, I've been preaching the gospel of virtual office for years, uh, and I, I know people looked at me and nodded, yeah, that's great, Mike, that's awesome, thanks, yeah. And when I left, they thought, what a nut that guy is. Um, and now I get to kind of go neener, neener, neener. I was right. See, you can do it. So that's my, that's my, my mature businessman response to that. <laughs> um, so it's great to see that. So I hope, I hope there's a lot of boards out there because I know, um, sometimes boards become the, uh, the uh, punching bag of any discussion about nonprofit governance, association governance. But I hope there's a lot of boards of directors out there that are looking at this and going, Maybe we can 
do this. Maybe our, our organization really can operate. Even in the mic, you stay safe out there when it comes to the physical space because it's just such a huge cost. And it right now is becoming very clear for a lot of organizations. It's going to be one of the areas that they can most rapidly save money. Oh, yeah. Huge time. Well, Mike, I really appreciate your time. I look forward to our next conversation, which is going to be about COVID and technology. So for you geeks out there, you, we can really get into it. What tools are working? What tools aren't working? Uh, but I really appreciate talking to you about what we've seen on the people side of things. Thank you for listening. I'm Dallas Emerson with the IT Guys, and this has been COVID Stories. I'd like to remind listeners that you have a COVID story, and we want to hear it. Send me an email at dallas at itguysusa.com, and let's set up a time to talk about your COVID story. Your story may be just the thing someone needs to hear. Thanks again.